0: Hello, welcome to the weekly market podcast from BNP Paribas Asset Management. I'm Daniel Moore, senior investment strategist, and this week I'm joined by Ed Lees, who is the senior portfolio manager and co-head of the environmental strategies group within the fundamental active equities team here at BNP Paribas Asset Management. So we'll be talking about the environment this week. Uh, But, of course, we need to start off with a bit of a recap on the macro picture, on the market picture. On the pandemic front, uh, probably the best you can say is that the news is mixed. And even then, maybe a bit too optimistic, because on one side, the data uh, actually is getting worse, and on the other, it's at best stable. So what's a bit unsettling remains the increase in infections in America Uh, There was a new high reach for daily number of infections last week, so certainly something that's very concerning. What's a bit more stable is the death rate. So, again, not something that necessarily makes one feel better, but so far at least we've not seen an acceleration in the death rate in the same way that we have with the infections, Uh, and the hope is that that remains the case. But remember, previous to this, Even as infections have been rising, you actually saw a declining death rate. So that situation has changed and remains certainly the biggest concern investors have for the market. Now, that said, the data that we got in terms of the economy, broadly speaking, was encouraging, but we need to be careful how we interpret that. In particular, if we look at retail sales in America, it does seem to paint this, this ideal V-shaped recovery that we all hoped we would have following the lockdowns. And if you just look at the picture of retail sales, it does give that impression. A couple of things to keep in mind, however. Retail sales tends to capture goods purchases, which have gone up because a lot of us are at home, evidently surfing on Amazon. But at the same time, we're obviously not going out to restaurants, we're not traveling, and that services demand isn't necessarily picked up in the retail sales figure. So it probably is giving us a distorted view of how quickly the economy is recovering. Also keep in mind that exports continue to decline. Uh, so certainly not a B-shaped recovery that we're looking for. Meaning, on one hand, you do have some encouraging data, but it is not necessarily a complete picture, and we remain concerned that the outlook is more of a U shaped recovery, meaning a more at best uh, a flat line from here before we see any real pickup. Finally, then of course we need to talk about the earnings season, Uh, the early indications, that said, generally speaking, are encouraging with the companies that we've had reports so far. Uh, And the key thing here are the sales surprises, the sales surprises, not necessarily the earnings results. And sales surprises are around 3.5%, and earnings surprises, even better, about 17.5%. Now, the reason that's important is because we all know that the absolute year-on-year growth rates for this quarter are going to be catastrophic, uh, around 40 to 50% down over the same quarter a year ago, and that's true both in the U.S. and in Europe. But we know this, and so the markets are going to trade on whether or not the actual figures come in better or worse than expected, which is why the surprises are so important, and so far, again, We've had better than expected results, both on the sales front and on the earnings front. And it's whether or not that continues will be one of the key indicators of how the market is going to trade from here. Now, we're anticipating certainly a high level of surprises just because there is so much uncertainty about the outlook. If you consider the range of estimates that analysts have for companies, they're particularly wide today, uh, which means you're almost inevitably going to be surprised. The last thing we to mention before we turn over to Ed is that also going into the earnings season, uh, the momentum in terms of earnings revisions has actually been quite good, that you've seen a rising rate of upward earnings estimate revisions uh, relative to downward earnings revisions, at least in the U.S. So kind of the base support is there, but in the background, uh, certainly much more concerned about how governments in particular are going to react to the rise in infection rates, and to, uh, at least at this point, uh, stable death rates in America. Okay, now let's turn over to our guest speaker today, Ed Lee. So, Ed, one of perhaps the surprises uh, in the consequences in the pandemic is, you know, all the other things that have been important to us over the last few years, in particular in the environment, uh, has still very much remained in investors' minds, and in the public minds, I would say. Uh, and certainly a very encouraging thing, appreciating how, if anything, it's, it's made the worries uh, and thoughts about the environment even more present in people's minds. You're looking at this, of course, from an investment perspective. So what do you see uh, are the investment opportunities around the environmental thing?
1: Yes, uh, hi, Daniel, and, and thank you for having me on the podcast today. Uh, you're right, there is quite a large opportunity. Unfortunately, uh, this is because it's also tied to the gravity of the situation. Uh, taking a step back, 2 billion more people are expected to be on the planet by 2035, driving 35 to 50 percent more resource demand uh, by that point in time. So, of course, we have a a function of population and economic growth, uh, which will drive uh, more emissions, broadly speaking. So so what to expect from this more uh, bad weather, disasters, floods, storm, fires, drought? Uh, I think we're all fairly familiar with the headlines, or maybe we've forgotten, given the coronavirus and Trump headlines more recently, but unfortunately we will be reminded in due course, uh, this problem has not gone away. And warming at a very simple level creates a vicious water cycle problem. More evaporation, more parched earth, more heavy rain. It's a feast and famine uh, uh, cycle that we have to deal with. Now, this is one aspect of, of the problems that create this massive opportunity that we're discussing today. And tens of trillions will need to be spent on new global infrastructure to get carbon out of the air. But, of course, it's not just carbon. We live in one big interconnected ecosystem. There's, uh, whether it's carbon in the air, thinking about forestry, ocean health, agricultural practice, waste management, water management, industrial contaminants, biodiversity, these are all interconnected issues. Um, and it's thinking about society's collective footprint on the world around us uh, and what we must do to reduce it. Uh, which is really uh, the, the foundation of, of the investment opportunities. Um, so the investment opportunities are broadly around both energy transition issues, as mentioned in broader natural capital themes. And these encompass some of the ideas of, uh, such as uh, decentralization, digitalization, decarbonization, uh, and detoxification. I, and I think that the opportunity is so strong because it's broadly supported by government regulation. Recently, we had news of Biden's two-trillion Green New Deal proposal. Um, this was most notable because he really brought our time horizon away from 2050 and forward, and really vocalizing the fact that he wants to make plans now for what we do in the 2020s. And this is around electrification, advanced nuclear, extending solar and wind support, and so on. There. Uh, with real tangible near-term examples, uh, you know, even this summer, the U.S. Postal Service is going to be tendering to replace their delivery fleet of thousands and thousands of vehicles, uh, and it's no surprise that uh, electric uh, car solutions, uh, delivery van solutions, are part of that. Meanwhile, here in Europe, uh, I think we're more familiar uh, with uh, the progressive nature of the governments and, and the view that that the stimulus is needed to deal with coronavirus really should also uh, come from green sectors, uh, and, and try to hit sort of two birds with one, one stone as it were. Um, so I think that that's an important idea that that this period of time that we've had over the last, um, several months, uh, has shown that, uh, you can't wait to deal with potentially existential problems. It's a bad idea. You want to tackle it early to give yourself a chance before you lose control. Now, you know, it's a bit ironic just, say that in regards to the uh, environmental issues because I think we all believe and and can see that we've pretty much waited too long. But nonetheless, better late than never. And and the key lesson here is that it's woken us up to the importance, I think, of tackling climate issues in tandem with stimulus spending. And it's shown us that uh, serious coordinated action on a global scale is possible. We can pivot dramatically to change behavior in a way that most of us have never seen in our lifetimes. And, And I think that there's a message of hope there. So all of the shift in in focus and government support and capital flows, including R&D, is what creates this outsized investment opportunity. Uh, Personally, I think it's the largest and most important investment theme I've seen in my career.
0: You mentioned uh, Joe Biden's proposal uh, in his platform for the U.S. election, and of course what we're seeing here in Europe, and particularly around the next generation, EU proposals and in general, uh, the amount of money governments are spending to help Uh, economies recover from the lockdown and the pandemic, but as you highlight, a lot of that now is being thought around investments within the environmental space. So again, uh, killing two birds with one stone. If we think then about that impetus for investment, both in the US and in Europe, speak not of the rest of the world, what are the main sectors within the investment unit that is for your strategy?
1: Well, historically, we've looked in traditional sectors like energy, materials, agriculture, uh, and industrials. Uh, however, um, you know, more and more companies have become tech-enabled over time, and it's become a little bit harder just to use old sector classifications. Um, and, and the reality is we move around uh, a little bit more depending on where solution providers are. Uh, but what I can say is that we broadly stick to those sectors and we'll not find ourselves, for example, investing in things like uh, financials and pharmaceuticals. If I look at more specific subsectors and themes, uh, what we can highlight is that this is not just about alternative energy. I mean, yes, it is is about solar and wind, but it's also about batteries, industrial energy efficiency, sustainable agriculture and aquaculture, sustainable forestry, hydrogen and fuel cells, green buildings, electrification of transportation, biofuels, recycling in the circular economy, Elimination of plastics, pollution control and testing, smart meters, grid modernization, and one that I'm starting to get particularly excited about, the prospects for uh, green uh, and cleaner shipping um, uh, and ocean freight. So there's really uh, quite a diverse uh, set of uh, themes under the hood.
0: The advantage, then, I guess, for you is that you can kind of invest a bit, a bit everywhere. Given how much uh, the landscape is changing and the opportunities that are presenting themselves, are really across all parts of the economy. Why do you see the environmental theme as offering potential for strong risk-adjusted returns? Because, in the end, of course, that's what most investors need to be thinking about.
1: Yeah, there are several reasons for that. Uh, one is because global policy is becoming more unified on this front. Uh, and I, uh, as uh, we've already touched on, I think this the sad reality is that uh, as we go through um, the next 10 years, uh, each year that goes by, we'll see these problems become bigger than we thought, and policy will be forced to uh, bring deadlines forward and probably increase its scope. But that's one reason. I, I think the other reason is uh, just because of the growth opportunity. Um, if we look uh, just at some of the subsectors that I've mentioned. Um, offshore wind, let's, we'll start with that. Uh, the IEA, International Energy Agency, projects almost a 17% compound annual growth rate through 2040 for offshore wind growth. So, you know, big numbers, you don't see this in every industry all the time. In solar, uh, the IEA thinks that renewables grow by 50% by 2024. It's roughly the size of the total power capacity of the United States, with solar being 60% of that on the battery side, uh, Wood McKinsey thinks that global energy storage could go up to 158 gigawatts by 2024, led by the U.S. and China. That's a 13 times increase over to, uh, 2018 levels. And on electric vehicles, uh, there's more uh, governments uh, coming to the table to propose bans to uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, you know, we have some examples of this between 2025, which is Norway, and 2040, which is France. If there's a range of countries in there. And Bloomberg New Energy Finance sees a 38% compound annual growth rate in EV sales through 2025, but this ramps to over 90% by 2040. And not just cars, but delivery vans, Class 8 trucking, all of these things are set for disruption. But perhaps one of the most exciting growth themes is in the hydrogen space, where the EU Commission just published this hydrogen strategy uh, recently in March, calling for up to 470 billion euros of investments into this area by 2050 uh, with specific targets through 2024. And we're starting from such a low base uh, that there is just a huge amount uh, to do here. And I think that the issue is really going to be, can we, do, can we meet those targets quickly enough? To, can we ramp it fast enough? Uh, but I think maybe the most important thing is just also public support and people. And you know, millennials are growing up. They're becoming wealthier. And they're very value-led. Uh, and you know, this evidence has been shown, at least in part, over H1. You know, ESG funds had inflows over H1 you know, and uh, consistent inflows. Uh, so this is one of the few areas, uh, I think, in, in March to uh, actually experience uh, capital inflows. Um, and then perhaps I'll just close on uh, another point, which is the increasing body of evidence, both within academia uh, and the sell side, that uh, focusing on uh, ESG, but particularly, I would say, the E, within ESG, uh, because, you know, these are very different things at the end of the day, environmental, social, and governance issues. But focusing on the E really can add alpha. Uh, and there are more and more studies that back this up from a quantitative standpoint, uh, not only that it adds alpha, but it can also lower volatility at the same time within portfolios.
0: Great. That really helps explain why it's not just an esoteric concept of wanting to focus on ESG, uh, but it really does help in the end generate returns. So let me summarize, if I may, what Ed just shared with us. If there is a silver lining at all to the pandemic, it's that we've seen the ability of governments to make uh, big changes, uh, large-scale investments in a brief period of time. And the hope is that that momentum, that enthusiasm will at least partly be focused on environmental considerations in the future, because without question... All the pressures that we're well aware of in terms of rising populations, resource demand uh, certainly are not going to go away. And to meet the challenges that that increase is going to present, we're going to need to see tens of trillions of dollars invested uh, across all environmental sectors. And that's really ultimately the opportunity for us as investors to try to take advantage of that. Uh, In the short term, certainly we've seen the political proposals coming out of both the U.S. and Europe, uh, but really it does seem to be a worldwide phenomenon. And as i mentioned, really touching pretty much all sectors of the economy. So it's not just alternative energy. It expands to batteries, water, green buildings, and transportation. So really a wide range of opportunities for Ed's team to invest in. And then the final very, very important point, what does this mean for investors and why we believe it heightens the potential for better risk-adjusted returns. We'll really think of both parts of of that statement, risk-adjusted and returns, in terms of the returns, you know, phenomenal growth opportunities, anticipation of very significant investments in the future. So the return potential, I would imagine, is quite evident. But on the risk-adjusted side, given now that you have so much more government support and driven fundamentally and importantly by public support, that suggests as well that this isn't going to be a fly-by-night phenomenon, but really something that we're going to see developing over over decades to come. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Ed, for joining me today. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact. And otherwise, we wish you a good week and take care. This podcast presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BNP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.